You're listening to Taking Care of Business, and I'm Rob Rose. I'm Juliette Televi, and every week, this is where you'll get the backstory to what you read in the Financial Mail and on Business Day. We also want to know what you'd like to know, who you want to hear from, and what you'd like to hear about. So please get in touch with us and email us at tcb at businesslive.co.za. So this week, we figured with Group 5, the latest construction sector stalled to succumb to South Africa's version of Chapter 11 bankruptcy, we'd speak to the company that was the first to go, and that is Basil Reed. It was placed in Business Rescue Last year, it was felled by a combination of debt, lack of finance, loss-making contracts, and uh, we have to say an unsupportive government. Now, K2 Mapasa has been Basil Reed's CEO since October 2017, and he joins us in studio. K2, thanks very much for coming in today. Thank you. I suppose just to start, I mean, it's really intriguing to be running a company that's in business rescue. How does that practically work? I mean, what is it? What actually happens on a day-to-day basis? So, perhaps I, I you know. You know, it's not Chapter 11, right? It's Chapter 6 of the Company Act in South Africa. Um, and there's something to talk about, you know, the difference between Chapter 11 and yeah. what we have as a dispensation in South Africa, but that for another day, right? Um, or maybe just a little bit later in the yeah, podcast. Yeah. Um, so if, you know, the, the way the law works is that the business rescue practitioners are the ultimate decision makers in replacement of the board, and management. So, to make it very simple, my board right now are the business rescue practitioners. And Basil Reed, there are two business rescue practitioners, that being Siviwe Dongwana and John Lightfoot. So, they are my bosses, if you can't call it. So, the ultimate decision makers. So, you have no real exec- executive authority right now? Well, that's the ultimate executive authority and fiduciary authority is with the business rescue practice. And there's a reason for that because ultimately they take the fiduciary responsibility of the company. This is actually an instrument of the law. Uh, chapter 6 says they are actually in their own personal capacity uh, just like if you have a normal company with directors, you can actually you, you, you need to stand for those fiduciary duties, right? So they ultimately make the decisions that can be challenged in court. Um, so they, they need to be in charge. So, and that's how it works. But practically, um, you know, business rescue practitioners are what I call bin counters. Um, they know nothing about construction. So you're saying they're so, your finance directors? Well, they, <laughs> they, they, a little bit more than that. Um, but the deep knowledge of construction is with us, uh, the existing management. So in, in effect, because this is a voluntary business rescue, it's actually a partnership relationship. So we work together. Uh, I'm on the phone. If I cannot see them every day, um, you know, most of the time the, we are executing my recommendations in that sense because I understand the industry better. We might be trying to solve a problem that, you know, they look at me and say, what's the best way forward in this? So one thing I've always found interesting is a lot of companies go into business rescue, but few emerge from this process. You look at Stutterfords, you look at so many of them that have ended up here. Um, I mean, what are the odds that business rescue can actually work in this case? And why doesn't it work in so many cases? Is it just that the companies are already on their deathbed? Yeah, part of it is that. um, And you also have to remember, Rob, this this is very new in South Africa. Uh, I think this part of the act came into effect around 2011. So we don't have a long history like the U.S., mm. where you know Chapter 11 is understood. So you can think 
General Motors 2009, General Motors is still around. Mm. Um, there is an infrastructure um, that supports Chapter 11. One of the important things is around what they call post-commencement finance, right? There are industries that are looking after financial in- industries that looks after just post-commencement finance in the jurisdictions that are the U.S. In South Africa, it's not true. Uh, so you have the traditional banks, <laughs> you know, in terms of their risk assessment, um, they're not predisposed as the same as if you're dealing with a financial distress company. So yeah. it makes for a very challenging uh, issue. So one of the key success around business rescue is securing post-commencement finance. The other issue is that you, you cannot use business rescue to avoid paying your creditors. So if you are in deep trouble, you're better off actually going for liquidation rather than, you know, business rescue. Because mm. quite often, my what I've been told many times is that you have companies that are very, very sick and they use business rescue to avoid, um, you know, the liquidation or they go into business rescue too late. Um, and that they, therein lies, you know, the seeds of failure. Uh, of business rescue. I mean, one of the one of the things is, you know, if you're an executive, you run a company, you're almost predestined to believe that your company is always going to survive. You have a sort of a, a inclination towards optimism, so you would generally favour going in too late, I suppose. And generally, isn't that part of the psychology of running a business? You always think things are going to improve sooner than rather than later. Uh, indeed, I mean, I think corporate uberism <laughs> it's part of the nature. I think sometimes we. You know, the boards of various companies, and I've got the privilege of sitting on a number of other boards, private companies. Um, when you sit there and you, you're a non-executive director, you have to uh, make the ultimate decision around whether you go into business rescue and you're listening to a CEO who's saying, you know, things are going to come right. And therein lies, I think, another story for construction companies. Um, I was speaking earlier about why did we end up in this space? Um, mm. I think the optimism was there, and you have to have optimism. And I think it's part of you know being a CEO. So you know, construction industry before 2010, um, you know, there's a, it was a boom. Everyone was building. Uh, we were pushing projects away. We were worried about not having capacity. And since then, you know, government infrastructure spend has declined in real terms. I mean, it's not a secret. Government is running out of money, so there's less and less projects uh, remaining. So what do we do? We end up uh, undercutting each other in terms of pricing. So you end up securing projects at 0% margins. Just so to basically go, keep your staff Keep your employed. capacity because yeah. you've got this optimism that construction is going to come back. And it hasn't come back for the last eight years. <laughs> you can't sustain that. If it's a year deep, yes, that strategy can work. But if it's prolonged, like what we've seen, and that's exactly where we ended up. Um, and that's that's the genesis, in my view, um, of where we've ended up in, in, in terms of, you know, being financially distressed. So how sick is or was Basil Reed um, going for voluntary business rescue? Um, I mean, would you say you had a case of business measles or was it terminal? No, I, I, our view is that, I mean, if you look at our 2017 results that we published around about May um, 2018, we lost just over a billion rand. Um, and that was our second 
Um, you know, it's a fraction of ESCOM. You guys could <laughs> But you know that number on a six billion rand turnover, it's you know it's, it's crushing. It's, and it's a disaster. And right? your, yeah. your liabilities were way in excess of your assets yeah. as well. But before that, what we had done is that we had secured a bridging facility. Um, you know, that's one of the tasks that I was involved in when I first became acting CEO in June 2017 with the IDC. And we had said we need to repay that 150 bridging loan um, either from the proceeds of the rights offer or the sale of what we have identified as non-core assets. What we did is that we were successful with the rights offer and, and our, th- our shareholders really came to the party because they could see Within Basel Reed, there were construction was a sick business. Yeah. But within Basel Reed, we've got a, another business called the mining services business. And we also have a development uh, uh, services business. And those businesses have been profitable. Um, and if we could use the, the turnaround plan has always been to wind out those construction contracts that have been losing money. Um, and that was the reason for the bridge. And the shareholders came in with more money. It was 300 million rand. 300 million yeah. rand. But our, I suppose in hindsight, <laughs> it's a perfect science. And I'm looking at it personally as a lesson and saying, we pay back the 150 million bridge. So when we went into business rescue, we were looking um, just before that uh, for 115 million that we have already repaid. I think for me, the genius would have been not paying back the 150, using it as a working capital to continue to wind down those construction business, and then you use the process of sale of the non-core assets to repay the bridge loan. Mm-hmm. Because what then happened, when, as soon as we went into business rescue, we had a one uh, non-core asset that was going to be sold on auction on the 23rd, I think, of June. We went into business rescue on the 15th of June. And everyone, you know, we, we thought, you know, we were going to get the number, the reserve price. that we, And then the day before, um, you know, the auction, we got news that, you know, there are no interested buyers. So we had to withdraw this because everyone now perceives, you know, Basel Reed is actually in business rescue. It probably means if I hold back, I can get this from a fire sale. So perception is very, very important. And, and, you know, that's that's where we are. I was going to ask, you talk of the fact that you undercut, the companies undercut each other. It's difficult to assess how this will happen because it's Group 5 as well in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. It's Esau, there are a whole lot of companies that are, are struggling and really in the, seem to be in the last legs. The industry seems on its last legs. And it's, it's a, people often talk about government infrastructure spending having completely plummeted. But to what extent is the industry culpable for this? To what extent... Is it an own goal? And where were those own goals versus what government did? Precisely. I mean, the job of executive is to read <laughs> the market. Did the executives pre- not do that? We, we, you know, I can I can say this, you know, my fellow peers in the industry can chase me down. I don't think we all, um, I think we believe too much that this infrastructure spend is going to come back. So undercutting each other was, you know, the order of the day. The trouble with that is that Projects by its own nature for construction, actually something will go wrong. So the design is not always what you hit when you're building a road, for example. So it gives rise to what we call variations. Uh, it, it end up in, in a claim. Um, 
the claim process <laughs> is so protracted where you don't have margins or, you know you are in trouble very very quickly i mean this yeah so that's part of the the reason rob where you know we are very culpable i'm admitting that we are culpable of that not being able to read that um so firstly i think what we were saying in our turnaround is that you know no project will be tendered at less than you know a certain margin percentage so we brought in a rule um, and lo and behold, we never secured <laughs> any more work. Because, because the other guys are still undercutting it. Yeah. So, but then what do you do at that point? So, I mean, I think it's not... You have to now cut your cloth to fit, right? So you have to reduce your own capacity if the market is continuing not to accept your service. I've also seen in situations where, you know, you know, clients will... Seek, will accept your bid because they believe in your quality uh, you've got a track record with them rather than the lowest bid you know so you've you've got to believe in yourself as well sometimes uh, and i think sometimes we lost that to say well we, we became very desperate um you know as, as an industry to say you know we're just gonna i mean i i i before i became the group ceo of um, of Basil Reed when I was running the mining business, this is very normal in the in the contract mining service and where you know the client will say do this additional work for me and I'll give him for example a hundred and he says no there's somebody else who can do it for seventy. I said the best I can do is ninety five, <laughs> yeah. and the client will say well but you could I said no I'm not never but then you know they go they go back and they say you know. You've got it for 95. At least I've protected my bottom line. And the client is not, is, has got a responsibility to reduce their own cost. So it's a negotiation process, but we sort of capitulate too early. Yeah. I mean, just going back to the issue of, of contracts that turn into these terrible, nightmarish, loss-making contracts that end up in claims and protracted disputes. Um, why is it that it happens so often? Like the because St. Helena Airport, right? I mean, was that well, was that one of the the examples that ended up in disputes? Um, no. You know, is it is it because you're over optimistic in the beginning and you say and you and you tender and you say this is uh, this is our design and this is how it's going to work out? Is it a, a lack of work done up front? What is it? So I think there's a, there's a few things, right? So if you look at a project value chain, um, where we sit as construction companies, usually we are doing the construction on a design that somebody else does. So up front, there's somebody who's called a consultant or engineer who, who did the design. And St. Helena is a very good example where we actually designed, build, operate, and we had a handover after 10 years. So we could actually design for constructability because we've got the skills in-house to do that. Most other contracts are just construction only. And you've got a design engineer who's your manager on the other side. Um, so if there is a design flaw, <laughs> he's, he's actually not very, you know, turkeys don't vote for Christmas, right? <laughs> so he's not going to admit easily yeah. that he's made a mistake. So that's what ends up happening. And that's one, one sort of 
pathology in the industry, in, in the broader industry. The second one is don't underestimate the fact that our clients have got no money. I'm talking government. So the longer they drag things on <laughs> in the claim process, because their budgets are not allocated, the better for them. I wanted to ask just, just one thing quickly. In terms of the Sanson, you look at Sanson, you walk through Sanson in Joburg, and there's a thousand Merida projects taking place. Yeah. Why is it that our construction companies are falling apart when there is actually building taking place in the country? Who's doing this? What is, why, why can we not, we see massive building and yet our construction companies are falling over the whole time? You know, it's a it's it's a very it's a, it's a very interesting mystery. I, I, and Juliette asked me earlier, you know, before this uh, about the, um, you know, the iconic building for Basil Reed. Um, you, you probably have never seen Basil Reed in Santon, even during the boom. Uh, Basil Reed is not a traditional builder. Uh, we grew up uh, building roads, um, okay. so you know airports and, and, that, and the like. So we don't have that um, presence in that space. The Gauteng Freeway Project? Um, our competitors, yes, indeed. Um, our competitors um, are a lot more disposed to that space. Um, and that's a private market. But that private market is not sufficient, in my view, to cover everyone in the construction industry. Yeah. So government nature must come come into the space. Um, so you might see a construction boom in Santon, maybe in Cape Town foreshore, but that's a small compared to the industry uh, capacity that's there. Yeah, um, We've got uh, Siseko Njobeni who's been uh, sitting with us in studio. Uh, Siseko of course writes on matters construction, um, trade and industry for Business Day and Financial Mail. Siseko, you've got a question for K2. Yes. Uh, K2, you mentioned um, government contracts. Uh, I'd like to know, um, what was the profile of your contracts um, at the time when you went into business rescue and what has happened to those contracts? So you know, just roughly numbers, probably 80% of our contracts are with government or some sort of a government-related um, uh, institution, uh, state-owned ent enterprise. So by far, uh, Basel Reed is construction is involved with government in some form or another. So we had 25 contracts. Um, today, where we sit, we've got about six contracts uh, that are left. Um, because what has happened is we've completed some of the contracts. Some of the contracts we've cancelled because the clients are not paying us, so the contract provides for termination by us, and some of the contracts have been terminated by the client because we are in business rescue, uh, St. Helena being a very good example. Yeah. Um you must have watched Webster Febe earlier on ENCA this week, and Webster Febe is the CEO of um, the South African Forum of Civil Engineering Contractors. Indeed. Um, he, and he appealed to government to intervene to stop uh, what is now being called the construction mafia. And I spoke to Skumbuza Makazoma at Sanral last year about, uh, and I think the genesis was um, uh, amendments to regulations, uh, was it the PPPFA? Yes. Where construction companies um, have become obliged to cut in local contractors and now this has opened up this 
nightmarish scenario where you get site invasions, um, local guys coming into a project, halting it, uh, using, uh, you know, they're armed, they use violence to get their way because they want a cut of the project. This is Webster and Fabio talking on ENCA, and we uh, just thought we would play this and also um, the, 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 the ripple effect that this is happening on confidence and on skills yeah. in the industry. The two projects, them tend to bridge, there's a, a German company in uh, partnership with uh, uh, Avenge that is pulling out. I think they are battling it out in court. Mm. And in the Eastern Cape last uh, week, uh, 13th of March, a 2.4 billion rand private investment project of a German an investor being built by Double BHO was disrupted. Female engineers, engineers crying, going into the felt, saying, I will never come back into this country, we need to leave. Already we have 110 known, not known, engineers that have left the country. And once the construction industry loses that capacity like the rest of Africa, foreigners are going to build the infrastructure. Those engineers are going to come back here with foreign companies that double the cost because we'll not have that capacity to build the infrastructure in the country. I mean, that's a state of crisis and and so there's two aspects there a loss of skills that hollows out capacity almost permanently yeah. and the fact that the construction the state construction sector seems to be um, in the hands of a mafia indeed i mean what webster is talking about there you know giving examples there we've we've had our fair share uh, in many of our projects i can think about you know you know just here in Gauteng, we've got a developments project um, in, in near Ferenichen, uh called Savannah City, uh, where you know, you know, I got this distress call. Um, the employees were in hold up in the police <laughs> um, station um, because um, hmm. people have invaded uh, the space. Exactly that, uh, you know, this local procurement. Um, I don't think those regulations are fully understood and they are elements of criminality that are using the opportunity because of lack of clarity around those 30% local. But what is it? Is it, what is local? <laughs> My understanding is, you know, South Africa is local, right? Yeah. Um, and, and you've got to have the skills to be able to participate in that 30%. Uh, this notion of saying we are entitled to 30%, but 30% to do what? To just take the money, where I mean, I've already told what you that you, that you know, I've already told you that we are running on very thin margins. So mm -hmm. the margin of error is very small, so you can't have somebody, you can't carry passengers. But right? now you need a supportive state to say, okay, this is a crisis. We've got to step in yeah. and 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 give clarity and and get um, security services to or the police to do their jobs. But that doesn't seem to be happening. Yeah, I think it's 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 a lot bigger than that. I think it's a political problem um, because I think it's a social dialogue problem um, because, I mean, I just have to remind you of what happened in Marikana when you have a sort of a police issue. Um, I think the industry, when I talk about the industry, community and everyone, we, we need to come together and actually understand that because, I'd, yes, you can have a solution that says, you know, police intervention, they come with guns uh, as you as Webster mentioned, that people come with rifles. And we've had the same example. So when you have people with rifles and you have police coming in with rifles, it's... No one a, wants it's, to work there. No. It's, you know, for us poor engineers, it's pretty scary. But 
so that's why I'm saying we got to elevate this a lot higher than just uh, a police intervention because you know the consequences of not taking it that serious um, it's it's you know we don't want another Marikana situation um, so I, I really think you know we need leadership <laughs> at all levels all of us um, I think there was a SEFSEC conference or you know one of the legal firms put together to discuss some of these issues around construction industry and where do we go from here and I think the lack of dialogue you know, upfront dialogue um, to say we we're going to do this in this community and getting the community and in, and in involved upfront and you know setting expectations. It's it's a bit of an Achilles heel for us, mm. but unfortunately, I think we are caught as South Africa the you know the downgrade and everything else. You know, it's it's like a bit of a you know a bit of a feeding frenzy. <laughs> Every there's no one who's willing to take a bit of pain or step back and say let's do things for for, for, for the, the good for the good. good it's like how do i get to the end quickly you know um sure. get take my cut you know we we're fighting over a shrinking pine and that's that's to me is a the sad part so you, you talk of the lack of leadership politicians as well as i suppose the industry as well not not taking up the mantle and yeah. doing something about it but i mean in terms of this industry is it for investors, I mean, investors, these companies have been listed on the JSC for ages. Is is there any solution in the in the long run? It sounds like it's uninvestable for the moment. There are these, these kind of crises which are just making it worse, never mind the existing state of, of the contracts. But look, I mean, I'm, I'm going to sound like an optimist again. I mean, we... we <laughs> Someone's got to be. This country has to do infrastructure expenditure. Um, you know, it's unfortunate most of these companies, uh, all of us are experiencing deep financial distress at the moment but when that does come back <laughs> you know surely for the investors they, there must be something but you've got to be in a situation where you've got that you know Warren Buffett says you've got to be you know greedy when everyone is running away and you've mm. got to be you know that that whole kind of concept this is why you take my point earlier on when I spoke about business rescue and the lack of a fund or financial institutions that are just focused on specializing in that space. And that's where I see an opportunity to say those investors who are able to identify those assets, perhaps consolidate and be very focused, um, you know, they stand to benefit in the future. So, so to play devil's advocate on this, is it not a good thing that some companies collapse because then it brings pricing power back to the remaining players? They can, they can price the contracts properly make an investable sector again and grow it again. Precisely. I think it's it's capitalism, right? <laughs> that's that's exactly what... Creative destruction. Uh, creative destruction. And that's... We've got to get better in that as, as an industry, you know, individual players in the industry to understand, you know, strategy, which is about competition. And it's about outperforming your competitor in a, in a lawful way, right? So that's really what it is. So... Those who are remaining standing will have that pricing power. Do you think there'll be skills left enough um, to do? And, and, and you say when the industry surely comes back. I mean, is it a case of when or is it actually a case of if at this point? <laughs> we have it. It's, it's when. Really, I think when we sort out our financial situation as a country, I think, you know, 
we can't run away from infrastructure spend. I mean, I, th- this weekend, I drove to my home province in Limpopo, um, you know, water, simple. It's, you know, maybe he, you're sitting here in Johannesburg, you think it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, gi- you, it's a you given, open huh? the tap and it goes, but you, just remind you, Cape Town, um, you know, the drought spawned out desalination. Who's doing that? Construction companies, right? So there are those opportunities. Um, these roads, um, they have to be built. I mean, I was again in Lopopo. There are places where road infrastructure is needed, absolutely needed. Um, maybe just one last point. Keto Gordon, when he was CEO of PPC, called for a, a sort of an infrastructure cadessa. Um, I always thought it was a great idea. He also talked about really standardizing schools, clinics. You have kind of a, a one model and you and you and you divvy it, up, divvy it up, get the construction companies to build it. Do you think that's what we need? Do you talk about dialogue, all parties coming together? Could you guys push for that? Do you think Pre- there's support for it? Precisely. I think there's a presidential infrastructure commission, I think. But that's been around for ages. And what's it doing? Precisely. I mean, I think we're all disappointed because we, we, certain, we certainly had different expectation of what has transpired and I think that's where it starts I mean I think government has to take lead um, I mean it's it's not a secret you go to China um, or you go to the US you've got this big construction companies that travel with the president I mean that's what what it's all about and precisely when you come back to what you're saying Ketso has said you know we've got industry bodies like SAFSEC <laughs> Um, you know, we've got uh, the voluntary rebuild program, which following the competition commission things, we, we, we're sitting and we are having discussions. I mean, Minister Patel, you know, in the beginning of the year, we, we had one of those dialogues. And those ideas are coming um, and are there. There's a there's a infrastructure fund that government has committed 10 billion, I mean, 100 billion over a number of years. And they want to attract private infrastructure um, funds into it. Those are the ideas that we need to make into fruition uh, to, to really, I mean, it's not just about construction companies, it's about the country. That's, 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 that's what's important, yeah. yeah. In terms of your company now, I mean, Basil Reed's been an institution for, you know, 60, 67 years or so. I mean, it's, is this, is it, what are the odds that it's really going to come out of business rescue now and where are you in the process? And I suppose as a, as a last point, I wanted to ask, what's the big, biggest lesson you've learned being in business rescue? <laughs> So I think the business rescue practitioners still continue to believe there is a reasonable, reasonable prospect, uh, despite many, many challenges. And I never really got to cover some of the challenges around. Maybe I'll cover from the lessons um, that mm. I've learned around business rescue. So there's a reasonable prospect of Basil Reed being successfully rescued. The law talks about part A and part B of rescue. So you can either wind down the business and you get... Um, you know, a better dividend for the creditors than you would have in a liquidation or you restructure the company going forward. And I think where we are going with Basil Reed is that construction, we're going to reduce that to minimum. And the idea is that we're going to be left with one or two projects and, you know, pay back our debt, get to a point where you, you, you get pay off the dividend and then you can continue trading. You have, as I said, two other businesses that are successful, um, and and releasing that is part of the business rescue plan to to say, protect the value in those businesses and continue to trade with, with like that. So that's where we are going. So we're going to be 
quite small in construction or to nothing because we have to its nature is those construction con- projects are losing money right mm-hmm. so you can't continue to fund it so you've got to find a way to complete it uh, or terminate uh, get that uh, contract terminated unfortunately what that means is that we have to retrain those people right because we don't have ready projects where we've secured work because when you go into business rescue you cannot uh, comply in any of the tenders you can't raise a performance guarantee because no one will give it to you um, you probably don't have the tax clearance because <laughs> you're behind uh, so a bit of a chicken and egg there so until you get to a point where you've satisfied um, all your creditors um, you, you can't really declare victory in terms of business rescue. So personally, whatever I learned. <laughs> it's to stay away from construction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the, my family asked me <laughs> what I've been thinking because I'm, I'm a newbie in this industry, relative. Uh, I used to work uh, for a very long time uh, for Anglo-American, um, which is, uh, it's got its own challenges in mining. And Are that you space. an engineer? Right? I'm an engineer. Um, funny enough, I'm a chemical engineer, which is, so you could ask me what am I doing in <laughs> construction. But, um, but um, you know, I, I've learned business in a very different way because w- what it has become, it's about cash. You know the adage, revenue is vanity, Profit is a bit of sanity, and then mm. cash is reality. And the way we've been running the business is about cash on a daily basis, even an hourly basis, right? But it taught me lessons where I wouldn't have learned those lessons in a big construction company that has been successful uh, or like a big mining house um, because I'm making decisions or getting involved in the granular details. You get into ask questions like, are you paying security um, services for this much? You know, and you have four security guards. But you know, the building is empty. Maybe you can get away with one. You know, it's it's that granular. So I, I it's almost like I tell people um, we, we're disassembling this business that has been together for such a long time. Then you get to understand the controls, who puts in the order for this. Should they put in an order? <laughs> because you get situations where people are saying, well, I've got to get the cement here. Um, you know, I've got to buy in bulk. But I've driven past some of these projects sometimes when we're building a road. We've got bags and bags of cement. You ask the question, when is this cement going to be? You know, we're going to use it in two months' time. But why did you buy it now? Hmm. Because somebody is going to come and steal it. Because, hmm. you know, you're building roads in, you know, so it's those, those lessons. I mean, I've, I've learned a lot more about business than what I learned when I went to Harvard Business School. I mean, and I'm really mean it because it's very theoretical when you talk sure. finances and all those things, so when it's we, real. Should we recommend that every CEO goes through business risk? I, I, I will <laughs> really, you have to have the stomach for it. It's very ch- uh, stomach churning because you know it's not about things are going to go wrong. It's like when things are go wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And how you recover and you react to it. So you get a client who promise you I'm going to pay you tomorrow, and they don't pay you. And you're depending on that cash flow to pay Someone wages else. and salaries. Yeah. 
And <laughs> you're now longer able to honor that. And that gets very personal. So for me, that has been a very key lesson. And one last I- issue, your people. People, you, you, you know, you hear business schools talk about people are the most important assets. I tell you, when you're in the trenches in business rescue, you actually learn who are with you, who are the people with you, who are not with you. And because corporate politics disappear very quickly. Hmm. Yeah. You, you are exposed. So you, you, you learn very quickly who are the people who are managing you, Mr. CEO, you're the big guy and they're telling you nice stories. Um, and those people who are really committed. Um, and unfortunately, you know, I've lost a, a few people um, in, in, the, in the process. Um, some of them regret losses, some of them is not. Uh, but it accelerated that process of being able to, to learn that about people. Yeah. Katie, it's, it's fascinating. We have to leave it there, though. I think we've uh, gone on for a bit. Um, but thank you very much for taking time out from a surely um, harrowing experience uh, to join us uh, this morning. Thank you. Ketu Mapasa is the CEO of Basil Reed.